another epic episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, the hyper-anomalous esoteric research organization podcast is up to it once again. Broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain just south of Area 51, my name is Ryan, anomalous ambassador of the airwaves, bringing you a great episode today. On today's podcast... We have one of my favorite people and researchers to talk to. It's Trey Hudson. It's not just his concise and professional manner of conducting research, but also his rational examination of it and matter-of-fact explanation of his findings. His research and explorations also share a common element with some of my passions as he is delving deeply with the help of the Oxford Paranormal Society, of which he is director, and assistance from Anomalous Studies and Observation Group, into a paranormal hotspot known only as the Meadow. The location is kept secret for a variety of reasons, and has been dubbed the South's Skinwalker Ranch. He has written a book on the subject, which is fantastic. It's also available for sale for all to read, and we will get into that. This remote location, known as the Meadow, has reports of UFOs, cryptid animals, missing time, portal activity, men or women in black, boxes which can't be explained, and crop circle-like formations. Can't wait to talk to Trey about many of the things that go bump in the night and gather information on a location whose story needs to be told. Nobody better than Trey to tell it. Trey Hudson, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Ryan. Uh, you know, we have been wanting to uh, do this for a while, and we finally made it happen, so I'm very happy to be here today. Oh, this is exciting. It's it's very exciting because I understand this location is obviously in the south of the United States. We're not going to try to go into exactly where it is because it's a marginal place that is very sensitive, and if everybody and their dog is out there, it's going to affect your research. Before we go any further, um, let's tell our listeners just a little bit about what's happened in the past and where things are kind of going in the future. I know you have an upcoming trip out to the location, and you've gathered a lot of research and data so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when the, the moniker, the Skinwalker, you know, Ranch of the South was, was tagged to this location. That sounds a little bit like hyperbole. You know, that, that, that's a bold claim. And when we started researching this and the phenomena that started presenting itself, and you, you kind of went over, you know, a litany of some of the things that we've uh, encountered, you know, strange uh, formations in the, the, the grass, you know, in, in the vegetation in the meadow, uh, uh, up, dare I say, a portal, uh, Entities we picked up on our FLIR, uh, cryptids visiting our base camp, uh, 
missing time. Uh, people, and this is sounds bizarre, uh, turning into uh, like a sphere of energy, you know, as we're observing them on our uh, on our thermals. It just all of the the the, the rich variety, the, the very detailed tapestry of high strangeness that happens to this location. You know, I started thinking about it, and oh, disembodied voices, another thing I forgot. Uh, I thought this sounds like another location that uh, everybody's heard of uh, in the Uinta Basin. And uh, so the Skinwalker Ranch to the south, it's, uh, it's one of those very special locations that seems to be a high geoconcentration of uh, weird happenings and high strangeness. Yes. And what, what I like about it, um, the book is absolutely amazing. And before we go any further, let's tell listeners where they can purchase and the name of the book, of course, and uh, what, what brought you to write it. Uh, sure. The, the name of the book is uh, The Meadow Project Exploration into the South Skinwalker Ranch. And uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, you know, in ebook, uh, audio book, hardcover, softcover. Uh, and all you have to do is type in the, the, uh, the title of the book, or you can just type in my name, Trey Hudson, in the Amazon uh, search bar, and uh, it'll come right up. I'm also uh, happy to announce, this is a kind of a, 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 a new, new, uh, new part of the tale, is I hope to launch the book uh, in France this month. So it'll be, it's been translated into French. And so, you know, maybe some of the uh, adherents and big fans of, uh, you know, the legendary Jacques Vallée will, you know, actually get to read it in their native language. So I'm kind of excited about that also. Oh, that's great news. That's great news. It's a story that I believe must be told internationally. So that's wonderful. One of my favorite stories is not only very real, but can and has been validated through a variety of methods. A woman in black experience that took place there that quite literally comes right off the pages of a John Keel story. Can we go a little bit into that? Oh, yes, absolutely. That is a, one of the situations that really unnerved me. I mean, it, you know, some of the people on our team, uh, you know, have military special operations backgrounds. Most of the members of our team are involved in some kind of high-stress uh, type profession, be it emergency, medicine, law enforcement, things like that. So, you know, it takes a little bit to rattle us. In that particular evening... Uh, unnerved us, and uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll go into exactly what happened, and then some really amazing developments have happened since then, which uh, are not in the book that actually have developed since then. Uh, we had the uh, the very strange encounter with uh, you know the cube or the portal that you uh, referenced earlier, and uh, we were deciding whether we wanted to continue investigating and researching that evening, or if we needed to get back to base camp and do a, uh, an after-action review while all this amazing, you know, information and data was still fresh on our mind. Uh, so we were gathered together, you know, there in the meadow discussing what we wanted to do the rest of the evening. I made the decision to go back and do a, a video after-action review, which uh, is about 40 minutes long. It's uh, videotaped and really interesting, and the transcript of that entire AAR is in the book. Uh, so I'm getting ready to, uh, you have the team packed up, return back to base camp. It's about a half a mile hike back to base camp. The meadow is very re remote. You can't get to it by vehicle. You have to pack all of your equipment in there. So we're gathering up all of our equipment, all of our gear, 
and my uh, base camp operator, Glenn, comes over the radio. And he says, hey, you know, there's somebody here that wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking he was referring to himself. And I said, Glenn, I'll talk to you when I get back. And he goes, no, it's not me. It's somebody else. So obviously I'm a bit intrigued. It was about 22, 30, 10, 30 at night in February in the middle of the forest in the wintertime. But who is going to be out tootling around in the forest, you know, in the middle of the night? It was a very odd, odd request, but, you know, I, we packed up our gear and went back there. When I arrived, much to my surprise, there was a woman in our camp, in our base camp, dressed as a businesswoman. She was wearing uh, loafers, slacks, a blouse, and a blazer. So, you know, in my chapter, I believe I, I titled it The Mysterious Businesswoman of the Forest because it's you know, here's a businesswoman waiting for us to return from our, you know, extraordinary uh, encounters and happenings that, you know, just occurred, you know, an hour or so before. So, uh, you know, this woman comes up to me and she starts talking about, uh, you know, rather agitated about this area that she wants us to drop what we were doing and follow her to this remote site. And she describes it as being down a deserted county road. And at the end of this road, there's a structure, like a barn or a shed or something. And she said, this structure is inhabited by a family of what she calls monkey bears. I've never heard of a monkey bear before. I know what a gummy bear is. I know what Smokey the Bear is. But a monkey bear, that's a new one on me. And she seemed off. She seemed... I, you know, it's really hard to articulate. Something just wasn't right about this woman. And she was insistent. You know, you've got to drop what you're doing. You must follow me down there. You know, this is really important. And so, of course, all of the, uh, you know, all the variables start rolling through our heads. You know, is she, you know, trying to lure us away so we can be robbed? You know, uh, is, does she have some sort of ulterior motive? You know, what, what, are, her, what are her driving forces? that makes her so insistent about us following her. And what rational person would expect a group that you had just met to completely throw their trust in you and follow you to a remote location in the middle of nowhere? So it seemed off. And so she, you know, continued, uh, you know, trying to convince us to follow her. And she uh, struck up a, uh, you know, a conversation with me. And she said, uh, oh, well, you know, did, you know, did you go to college or something like that? And I said, yes, of course. I said, I went to the, uh, you know, graduated from the University of West Georgia in Carrollton. And she says, oh, I did too. And then she says, what is, what was your, uh, what's your degree in? And I told her I have a BA in humanistic psychology. And she's like, oh, I do too. And I thought, okay, you know. She's playing with me. She is just parroting back what I say. So I'm going to catch her. I'm going to be very clever. And I said, what? And who were your favorite professors there? Who did you actually study under? And she started naming people I actually knew mm. that I studied under. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is a little too weird. Okay, this is, you know, this has just been notched up. I was a little unnerved before. Now it's been notched up, a, you know, one more increment. And so she continued on, you know, with, uh, with her, uh, you know, her, her attempt to, uh, get us to follow her. 
in the middle of this, uh, she breaks off from us, walks out about maybe 20 meters or so, still within the light of our uh, lanterns, and she squats down and urinates in front of all of us. And uh, comes back over like nothing happened, like that was the most normal thing in the world. And we finally were able to get her to go away, to leave. And it was so unnerving that uh, one of my team members, who is a uh, former uh, member of the uh, U.S. Army Ranger Regiment, uh, uh, Special Operations guy, and I said, hey, you know, Tim, do you have your sidearm with you? And he says, yes, of course. And I said, this isn't right. Something is wrong about this whole situation. I want you and I to back off of go outside of camp about 75 yards and just do a circle because I wouldn't be surprised if she left somebody here that we're not aware of. And we did like a quick patrol around the camp and we discovered nobody. We were scanning with uh, thermal and clear night vision. We didn't see anybody. So we just struck it up to a uh, very unusual happening. And the more I thought about this, and going back into uh, you know some of the records and some of the the research, and you mentioned you know John Keel, you know pulling up some of his uh, some of his books out of my library, you have some uh, factors that come into play that are very obvious. A person not properly dressed or dressed strangely for the occasion, a person who seems off or unusual, odd, a bit uncanny. A person who doesn't understand social cueing, like we kept saying, you know, have a good night, take care, drive safely, and she wouldn't pick up on the fact that we were ending the conversation. And a person that, that doesn't understand what is proper and improper uh, behavior in a polite culture, i.e., you don't urinate in front of people unless you know them really, really well. So there's one, one, one group of people that fit this criteria as they relate to incidents of high strangeness. John Keel talked about them. Nick Redfern's written a book about them. They're called the men and women in black. You know, very common occurrences, uh, you know, where people who have had incidences of high strangeness and these individuals come in and they try to dissuade them either from continuing their research or try to uh, tamper and tamp down their discussion of the experiences. So was this a human being that we interacted with? Was it somebody or something from another universe or another dimension? We didn't know. Well, turn the page. Uh, several months later, uh, I had a, uh, a message from an individual who uh, is a uh, psychotherapist that lives in Turkey, American, expat. And he had listened to one of my interviews uh, that I you know, did on coast to coast or one of the, uh, you know, one of the, inter one of the interviews. And he says, Hey, you know, talk to me about, uh, first of all, this, this area called the Carrollton vortex near the university of West Georgia, which I had not had time to research, but as we were discussing, uh, various things, he said, do you happen to have the, uh, the name of the woman that visited you? And I said, well, I do. I said, we actually did a little bit of data mining on the name she gave us. And we found a person that looks like the person that visited us who appears to be a real person. And we're still just mystified by this. He said, I, well, what's her name? And I said, her name is, you know, Miss blank blank. And he said, I think I know her. Do you mind if I contact her? I, I went, to, went to college with her. So this individual was also a graduate of the University of West Georgia. 
the, the psychotherapist. And I said, no, not at all. I said, a matter of fact, I would love to interview her. I said, I'm not, you know, I don't want to out her because the way she was acting was very strange. And the profession that she uh, said that she was in uh, requires a license, you know, from the state. And, you know, the way she was acting, you know, could you know, interfere with, uh, you know, that license. So, you know, I don't want to out her. I don't want to you know, do anything negative. I just, I'm interested. I'm curious what exactly was going on. So she declined to be interviewed by me, but she was willing to talk to him. And uh, he asked her, he said, do you remember anything about that evening? And she says, yes, I remember driving by their camp earlier in the day because, uh, you know, I have a very stressful job and I like to head out into the middle of the forest to unwind. And I saw something like a sticker on one of their trucks or something that had like a Sasquatch or something. And I wanted to talk to them about my experiences when I was a young child. So I came back later that night and, you know, I wanted them to go out with me and see the site where it was. And they didn't seem too interested. And it seemed like they were hiding something from me. There was something they were doing that they didn't want me to know, which was accurate. You know, we wanted to do our after action brief and, uh, you know, didn't need to have prying years while we were doing this. And uh, my friend asked her, did anything else seem or uh, out of the ordinary unusual? And she goes, no, they just didn't seem interested in talking to me. And I got in my vehicle and left. And I went back and I queried my team. I said, everybody write up a quick statement about your impressions and recollections of what happened that evening. And you know, to a person, they came back that she was very strange. Uh, my base camp operator, whose name is Glenn, like a 30-year career paramedic, has dealt with all kinds of people in all kinds of state of uh, disarray, you know, be it medically or, medical or psychological. And he says, I've never seen anybody act like this woman act. It was some of the strangest, most bizarre behavior I've ever seen. And everybody uh, remembers her urinating. She doesn't recall any of this. So that puts a different little twist on the whole men slash women in black phenomenon. Are these human beings actual real people that are being influenced by something else? And are they overlaid with a screen memory to mask their recollection of uh, their bizarre behavior? So that, that just puts a whole different little twist on things that, uh, I don't know if it was exactly there before that uh, these perhaps were real actual people under the influence of something else. And talking to my friend, the uh, psychotherapist, he said, you know, she was a uh, was a very perceptive person, you know, like from a uh, paranormal type of perspective. And she was tuned into a lot of things. So it would make sense that she was, uh, you know, a person who could be influenced by an outside force. So, you know, that is the, uh, the, the woman in black. Uh, we have not had a, any other experiences with strange people visiting our campsite or our operation. But uh, I believe that that one was, was just strange enough to, uh, to certainly last me for my, the rest of my life. It is a weird one, a very weird one, in fact. And it kind of stood out to me because it is very much Mothman-like, John Keel-like, the men, women in black type behavior the synchronicities arriving to the location and investigating the area seem eerie. Now, 
You are exceptionally connected in government-like circles and people who have worked with the military in sticky situations, and they have backgrounds which are very valuable in situations like these. This location has a long history of belief in social circles and the culture of the population in the surrounding area, and many tales, much like the wild monkey bear story, which I've never heard of those either, um... Can you mention a few of the suburban legends or tales you've heard that surround the general location? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, about the first 25% of my book, I, I go into the history of this area. Uh, it, yeah, I go all the way back to the Native American history, which was you know, very rich uh, you know, in this general area. And I look at it from a macro to a micro. I, I go into a, a multi-state you know, macro area, then I, tie, I tighten it into the county surrounding the uh, Blackwater Nature Preserve, where this area is, and then tighten in on the actual preserve itself. And in the general area, uh, there's a lot of Native American uh, folklore of uh, skinwalker-type entities. Now, this is, of course, in the South, not in the West, so they don't use the term skinwalker, but there is a unique uh, uh sorceress, you know, shamanistic type of person called the uh, Spearfinger Witch, which was a, uh, a female Native American uh, entity that would steal the livers and souls of children, you know, and cackle while she was eating their livers. And, uh, you know, was enchanted. There's also stories of what they call the stone coat giants, which were large humanoid type creatures whose thick hair acted as a, uh, a ballistic barrier. When they, they would shoot their arrows at these creatures, they would bounce off of their thick, matted hair, i.e. Sasquatch, you know, Bigfoot. Once again, we see you know, certain commonalities. Uh, bringing it forward into the more modern era, uh, this, this general area among multiple states has a, a, a rich history of ghosts, uh, Bigfoot sightings, uh, U some fantastic U UAP sightings, UFO sightings and, and instances. And then we tighten it in close, very close into the actual nature preserve itself. They've had some really amazing uh, UFO sightings once again there. If you know where the location is and you go to BFR and some of the other cryptid research organizations, very rich history of uh, Bigfoot sightings in this area, which we've also seen cryptids while we've been out. And then it also has a very dark history, uh, you know, Bodies being found, people being murdered, uh, strange, you know, strange events going on, uh, you know, things like that. That end in a very tragic, uh, you know, tragic, you know, circumstance, a very tragic end. Uh, re recently, within a, the past month, we had a terrible murder, you know, in an area not too far from where we researched. So it's one of those areas that just seems off. You know, a lot of tragedy there, a lot of high strangeness, and a lot of amazing encounters. So, you know, the folklore is rich. The uh, the the more data-driven accounts, i.e., you know, BFRO and some of the other organizations that actually collect uh, data, is rich. And then the uh, you know the the history of the area, as far as you know, negative things happening there, is very rich. So it makes for a very unique location, somewhere you kind of need to be, you know, on the ball when you go to. You need to be certainly aware of your surroundings and really tuned in to what's going on, which just makes it all the more interesting and uh, ripe for research. 
Yes, absolutely. And I find it very interesting that there are various locations in this world which portray out of the ordinary attributes, much like you've mentioned, and they can substantially surpass what the human mind can realistically comprehend. This seems to be one of those locations. It's been mentioned by ancient Native American tribes that some geographic locations may hold energies that have a, a mystical twist and often lend themselves to dark adepts, like I believe you said the Spirit Finger Witch. And um, these tales have to come from some, somewhere. I mean, the Stone Coat Giants, it sounds horrific. These highly energized and traumatic areas, they have um, what some claim can be known as a hitchhiker effect. And you mentioned George Knapp. In more recent times, uh, he and Colm Kelleher wrote a book, I think it was one year ago, this coming Monday, um, which kind of uh, attributes and goes into detail about this hitchhiker effect and what comes about uh, can, can we discuss the hitchhiker effect so our listeners understand it? And my next question is, have you had any cases of that with yourself or your team? Sure, yeah. The, the hitchhiker effect is something that you know, has been reported that individuals and researchers who look into areas of high strangeness uh, have something that follows them, you know, goes home with them. Uh, and the, the book that you, you talked about that, you know, I've read it, mm -hmm. it goes into depth. And once again, I was kind of shocked by some of the similarities that their accounts were to some of the accounts of my team. Uh, and we start crossing into what people call paranormal, you know, ghost stuff. And just kind of on a segue here, you know, something I've started observing and have come to accept, and I think this is an accurate statement, is you know whether it's paranormal i.e ghost stuff or cryptid or uaps or high strangeness i think it may be part of the same phenomena you know they're all facets of the same diamond we're just looking at them through different uh prisms you know different facets so you know we have people that are investigating areas known for you know ufos and high strangeness now they're encountering you know paranormal things happening back at their homes or their places of business your second question, have we encountered that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, mm. We've had several interesting accounts that have happened, uh, you know, by my team. Uh, and I'll go into a couple of the more remarkable ones. Uh, one of my team members, uh, she uh, returned home after spending a research weekend at the Meadow. And she was uh, filming her young child uh, playing on a, an elliptical machine they had at their home. You know, he was just you know, a little toddler. He was just playing on it. And through the viewfinder on her phone as she's filming him, she sees an orb, you know, a, a ball of light you know, floating around. And what makes it really interesting is while she's filming this, her young son points at it and starts saying, ball, ball, he sees it too. And, you know, she's had some, you know, unusual happenings at her home. My own personal experience is I had a, uh, a, a small LED flashlight that I set up on my desk uh, one evening, and I turned around and the little flashlight was gone. It disappeared. And, you know, like a lot of 
people. I assumed that I knocked it over or was you know, misremembering where I put it. I searched all over, you know, the room for it. Went to bed. The next morning I came back, and the flashlight is right where it was originally, sitting on my desk. So something had moved that flashlight and then put it back while I was asleep. Uh, a lot of people that investigate high strangeness uh, encounter the trickster element. You know, there's almost like a, 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 a someone tricking you and playing jokes on you. Uh, we recently, uh, the team was investigating another area, uh, not the meadow, uh, called the True Herd Corridor uh, near Georgia and Alabama. Very famous, very famous area for high strangeness. And one of the, uh, the guest researchers that was along with us, he went back and had a situation of uh, the hitchhikers that was so significant, he actually had to call someone to help clean his house or clear it. Uh, a lot of paranormal experiences going on after that we were researching uh, the True Bird Corridor, which, once again, you know, we had uh, experienced shadow people. Uh, I witnessed a, a amazing orb through my night vision, you know, for several minutes. Uh, and then that area, you know, once again, it's separate from the meadow. It's not the same area. But the hitchhiker phenomena is, uh, is well-known and well-documented by people that investigate, you know, these various attributes of high strangeness. And, you know, you may even have some accounts yourself, you know, of something uh, just seeming to, uh, to hang around and visit for a little bit longer. Yes. And something strange I found is that, uh, well, a, a common paranormal account that some researchers and investigators have encountered aside from the hitchhiker effect, is sort of making contact and, for lack of a better word, becoming an integral part of the paranormal event or phenomena itself, and not just an observer. You have a portion um, of the book that goes into a little bit of detail about one of your team members who, for lack of a better word, covered a bunch of ground in a way that's not humanly possible. And... Um, you know, when, when I saw that part, combined with the theories from Jacques Vallée and Carl Jung regarding extraterrestrial intelligence or what may be more like an interdimensional intelligence, this can permeate and the human mind and make basically contact with the observer where they may or may not become part of the paranormal event or phenomenon. Can we go into that case? I found that super, super intriguing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh and to kind of address the, uh, the the whole concept is you go into the uh, the observer effect. You know, does the observer actually, by observing, change the nature of the event? And I think that's been proven, you know, scientifically with, uh, you know, quantum research and things like that. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, we are experiential beings and we are part of the, the situation and the experience. That particular evening was uh, rather odd, very strange. Uh, we had a team member uh, had some really strange things happen to him. We decided to go out into the meadow and set up a, a very uh, uh, methodical uh, operation that evening. And what we were going to do is set up three teams uh, in the meadow with night vision and FLIR, uh, three observation teams, and we were going to have a single team member move across the top of this ridge that's adjacent to the meadow. And the idea was several, uh, you know, this two or three folds is 
he could move it across the top of the ridge. If there was anything between the top of the ridge and the meadow, he could possibly flush it down to where the team members could pick it up on their equipment. Uh, he could observe something himself up on top of the ridge, or he also had a very high vantage point where he could look down into the meadow. So he had, you know, a very good uh, uh, position of observation. So as uh, we got set up, uh, and he was getting ready to start moving across the, uh, the top of the ridge, there is a, uh, a trail that leads to the ridge, and there's a very well-known uh, landmark that we're all familiar with. It's so a particular tree down across the trail. And he gets on his radio, and he says, uh, hey, guys, I'm at the tree across the trail, but I don't remember how I got here. So the first thing you know that pops into your mind, Occam's Razor, is he's having a medical event. So our paramedics get on the radio and they said, okay, you know, are you lightheaded? No, I'm not lightheaded. Are you, do you have a headache? No. Recite Mary had a little lamb. But we're thinking maybe a stroke. You know, he recited Mary had a little lamb. Do you have tingling in your extremities? No. You know, did you fall down and get concussed? No. So, you know, as human beings, we like to put things into a neat box. And the box we put that into is maybe he was just so focused on what he was doing that he didn't remember walking there. We've all driven to work, daydreaming, and we pull into the parking lot, and we don't really remember the drive there. It's happened to all of us. So perhaps, you know, that's the easiest and most convenient explanation. So that's what we chalked it up to. So he, uh, he moved across the top of the ridge, dropped down into the ridge, and uh, didn't see anything. Nothing interesting happened. So uh, he drops down into the west end of the meadow, and he starts working his way east. Our, one of our teams picks him up on their thermal. They see his heat signature, man-shaped heat signature, moving across the meadow. The two individuals in that uh, LPOP, listening post-observation post, uh, was once again my team member who is a former U.S. Army Ranger, also has a degree in physics from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and his partner, who also has a degree from the Georgia Institute of Technology and a master's degree, and is a, a, a career medical professional. So two very dialed in, feet on the ground, competent professionals are watching this individual move towards them. And as they're watching him through their thermals, his heat signature turns into a ball of energy, you know, a spherical shape that they're watching through their devices. And it moves several hundred meters in just a few seconds. And we calculated all of this. And it's a, between 23 and 25 miles an hour that this, this signature, heat signature moves. And then as they're watching it, it turned back into a man-shaped heat signature and they quickly got on the radio, and they said, oh, my goodness, are you okay? And they're watching through their thermals, and they see his hand come up with the radio mic and respond, yes, I'm okay. And they say, hey, you need to come to us really quick. And he said, okay, I'm on my way. So he makes his way over there, and they're like, oh, are you okay? Are you fine? And he's like, I'm okay. Why? Why do, why do you ask? Well, we saw you turn into a, you know, your, your heat signature turn into a spherical shape and move at a, inhuman speed and then turn back into a regular human shape. And he said, they said, what was your, you know, what happened? And he goes, nothing. I just walked over here. You know, from his perspective, he just walked over there. Nothing had changed. So, you know, to this day, going back to the observer effect, who had the experience, the observed or the observer? 
you know, who actually had their reality shifted in that particular incident? So, you know, we saw that was pretty weird. You know, most people would, you know, chalk that up as an apex event in their, uh, you know, career of researching into this kind of stuff. But it got even stranger. The next morning, uh, the, the same individual that had the missing time and was observed turning into a ball of energy came over and he showed us his GPS uh, track. His background is in uh, backcountry search and rescue. He served many years uh, as a uh, deputy sheriff and a law enforcement officer in the state of California. Spent many, many years conducting backcountry search and rescue. Very competent outdoorsman, you know, used to uh, being out in the wilderness, very comfortable with it. And because of that, one of the things that he always does is he turns his GPS on and runs a, a, a track line. You know, the GPS records his, uh, his travels, you know, throughout his, uh, his day. So he showed us this track line on his GPS the next morning. And much to our amazement and astonishment, his track line was a series of straight lines, some of which were on the other side of a very large creek or small river that, you know, you would get absolutely soaked trying to get to the other side. He was never on the other side of that river. He was never on the other side of that creek. Also, the very straight, linear track lines uh, were of such that you can't travel on foot in a straight line. The train is too rough. It's too rugged. And the only way that we could figure that you could travel in a straight line would be if you were in the air, if you were somehow flying over the terrain. So, you know, cu couple that with his missing time that evening, him seemingly turning into a ball of energy, one has to wonder, did he step out of our existence? Did he step out of our dimension? Or was he pulled out of our dimension by forces unknown for a small period of time? Just enough that he could have these very strange occurrences, missing time, turning into a ball of energy, and traveling in a straight line over the terrain. To this day, we've never come up with a quote unquote plausible explanation but when you start thinking about it the possibilities are quite amazing and what i've really liked about your research is the variety of the toolbox that you're digging into um, using the estes method and i'd like to discuss that for listeners as well um, but i wanted to touch on a point um, which is kind of interesting and an, another phenomena that's taken place out there which is the crop circle and you know crop circles are strange and unexplained and geometric patterns most often found in fields and meadows and i've been looking into the research of the cccs the center for crop circle studies and the research points out many of the telltale signs that this enigma displays um, verifying, verifying that the event is in fact anomalous. And the meadow where you are researching has displayed a similar strange set of markings or indentations on the ground in a wild way that the grass is bent and not broken. Can we discuss that and then maybe get into the Estes method? Oh, sure, absolutely. We, uh, one weekend we had decided to to explore a, uh, another field, another meadow, which was about seven miles away. So a uh, team of about seven of us uh, hiked cross-country to this meadow with our equipment and, you know, necessary support uh, gear to spend the night there. And uh, the next, next morning we came back, 
And there was some weird stuff that happened while we were out in this other meadow. Uh, but while we were gone, uh, two of the team members, uh, let me back up. When we mm-hmm. returned, one of the team members that stayed back uh, and another team member decided to walk out to the meadow and, you know, do a little observation before we were uh, returning that morning. And when they got there, they observed a set of, and I'm going to use a term, they weren't tire tracks, but they looked like tire tracks. And I'm going to use that as a descriptor so your listeners can kind of imagine what these things look like. There were two parallel lines of depressed grass, you know, maybe 12 to 18 inches wide, linear, two of them running parallel, almost like tire tracks. But what makes it weird is these two parallel track lines will almost look like something had been set into the meadow, dropped from the air, traveled a distance, and then was lifted out, meaning there was a distinct start point and a distinct ending point. You know, it wasn't like something drove down from the road or, you know, it was a quad or something like that. And uh, to make it even stranger is the grass was bent over. It wasn't broken. It was bent over, uh, grass about 18 inches high. And in these two track lines, there were anthills, you know, and molehills and small little saplings, you know, little tiny uh, saplings of trees just starting to grow. They were not depressed. The anthills were not depressed. So it wasn't like something was pressing down on the ground, compacting the soil. It just bent over the grass, which uh, is very, very strange. Once again, no explanation. It doesn't make any sense. It gets even stranger. When we got back to camp, two of the members that were on the uh, packing trip with us decided to go out and observe this strange phenomenon and uh, do a little research themselves while the rest of us uh, rested up and recovered from our, our trek. And they went out there with a full-spectrum camera. And they noticed that they stood in the, tra- in the middle of the track line and pointed their camera down the track line to the west. They saw, dare I say, a cube or a box through their full-spectrum camera. They would take the camera down, couldn't see with the naked eye, put it up, there it was. They would step out of the track line point their camera in the same direction and it wasn't visible. Stepped out of the other side of the track line, once again, wasn't visible. Stepped into the track line, there it was. So they went to take a photograph and uh, unfortunately, you know, they were still tired from the trek. They had forgotten to put the SIM card in the camera. So, you know, these things happen. And by the time we were able to get back out there, we, we couldn't see the, uh, the box or the cube. But I had affidavits from these two gentlemen, one of whom is an electrical engineer, so they're, you know, solid people. And, you know, once again, uh, cubes or boxes come into play, you know, there at the meadow. And what exactly they are and what their relationship to anything is, we, you know, aren't really sure. But, you know, that was our very, very strange uh, happening with a crop circle, and I'm using air quotes on that, but uh, strange indentations in the vegetation. So, uh, you know, that was our experience. Yeah, and let's, this is wild, Let, let's get into some of the newer things you're delving into, and before we start wrapping up, I'd like to delve for a moment in a little more into the box and uh, the situation mm-hmm. surrounding it, but as always, you've had me on the edge of my seat. We've covered 
a lot of the intriguing investigations, and I'd like to get into some of the new developments, including the Estes method, and not to mention, I'd like to note that you plan on utilizing this method in unison with what is known as the God Helmet, which is kind of a research slang in our circles for um, the work of Michael Persinger, and um, you plan on possibly combining uh, the God Helmet with the Estes Protocol and see if this makes the receiver more uh, prone to uh, paradimensional contact. Can we discuss that for a moment? Yeah, sure. Uh, quickly for your listeners, the Estes method is a uh, method utilizing a ghost box. And I'm sure you know most folks have watched one of the paranormal shows where you know people use ghost boxes uh, for communications. Problem with that is a lot of times we hear what we want to hear. So uh, it isn't exactly uh, you know subjective or. And the issue with that is, can we, you know, pull some of the, some of that out of it? And the way you do that with the Estes method is you have a ghost box with a uh, speaker set uh, tied into earbuds that go into a person's ear, and we'll call that person the receiver. And he or she has a set of uh, shooting muffs, you know, ear protectors over that. So all they can hear is what's coming out of the ghost box, you know, the little snippets of words and individual syllables and things like that. And we also take the person, the receiver, and we blindfold them. So they can't see who's asking questions. They can't hear the questions being asked. And their instructions are, if they hear an intelligible word you know, through the ghost box, is to repeat it. You know, Regardless of how strange or silly it may be, whatever word you pick up, repeat it. So if you hear the word rhubarb, then you just repeat the word rhubarb, you know. Catfish, you say catfish. So we did the Estes method in the uh, in the meadow and had some uh, pretty amazing results. And it's almost as though we were communicating with an entity, you know, and it was responding to direct questions. And what makes it really extra strange is when I started questioning very specific phenomenology, that is, you know, electromagnetic uh, fields, uh, you know, radiation, uh, geomagnetism, things like that, the entity started becoming very agitated, you know, very upset with us, you know, like it did not like that line of questioning, that line of query. Uh, so, you know, we had that on a video, which is a really amazing video. And also I have the entire transcript of that SD session in the book. So, uh, you know, it's right there if anybody's interested and wants to, you know, look at it for themselves. Uh, but, you know, we've talked about if somebody is starting to be dialed in, tuned into this other, you know, this other realm, this, this other means of communication, if we use the God helmet, which shoots uh, electromagnetic fields across the, uh, the frontal cortex, it creates a different state of consciousness, you know, kind of like some of the stuff that Lily and Alpert were doing with LSD, but this uses electromagnetic fields to create this, this altered stage of consciousness. So if we take an individual, uh, create an altered stage of consciousness, and then do a, a degree of slight sensory deprivation, i.e. the headphones, sound-canceling headphones, and blindfold, and then tie it in with a ghost box, would a receiver be even more 
receptive to paradimensional contact, paradimensional communication, more so than they would without the God helmet. So that's, uh, unfortunately, we're self-funded, and, uh, you know, we haven't procured a God helmet yet, but that's uh, certainly on our list of uh, things to do. It is so fascinating. I think it's intriguing. Absolutely wild, Trey. I'm so happy we got to have another conversation about one of the most, in my opinion, wild paranormal hotspots on the planet by all accounts, and the fact that people may be stepping through portals, um, enabling yeah. them to uh, move through uh, to other dimensions. This, this is absolutely mind-blowing. There's other places on the planet that this has been noted, but not in any way the way you have documented it, and um, kudos for that. You are visiting the property here sometime soon, and I wanted to uh, see what you ex- what what you expect. Even though it's very much unexpected, I'm sure when when the boots hit the ground. Yeah, uh, you know we we have a, a standard series of protocols that we use when we go out there. You know we have had very good luck setting up you know listening post, observation post, with thermals, uh, night vision. Things like that. We have started to develop uh, experimental uh, packages that we will leave out there. Uh, I've been in contact with uh, my alma mater. I've actually had a chance to lecture out there and have discussed some uh, paranormal research and uh, experimental packages. And some some of them that we're coming up with is uh, a series of uh, stopwatches. We have a control stopwatch and a stopwatch that we put out there in the field to see if there's a difference in time. Another experimental package that I just built uh, is a sealed pelican box with a uh, a magnetic uh, board in it that's broken up into squares. It's gridded. Squares are numbered 1 through 47. And I have a series of magnetic letters that I will place on this grid, record where the letters were in a random pattern, seal the box up, lock it, place it in the meadow, and then return to see if the letters have been moved around. So those are taking some of the uh, parapsychological experiments out of the laboratory and then bringing them into the field, you know, packing them into a field in an area known for high strangeness. Uh, so we have that going on. Uh, of course, we always have the options of doing sky watches. We've got some pretty neat uh, UFO video that we've captured out there. Uh, and, you know, basically, you know, as far as this location goes, it's a uh, dealer's choice. You know, we have so much phenomena and so many uh, avenues that you can go down as far as research that uh, you could spend the rest of your life researching this area with a, a whole array of different, uh, different methods and techniques. Yeah, it seems that the, the zone that you are in has a very strange and a wide gamut of... Uh paranormal activity and things that just can't be explained. There is always that nagging or should I say itching feeling that many have uh, wondering if there could be or might be any kind of government or military experimentation being take taken place somewhere around the area or in the vicinity. But I believe you've you've mentioned in the past this is unlikely. Could we go into that just a bit? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into, you know, my background and, you know, what I do to earn a living. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I'm not making, you know, enough money to live on doing research. But I'll just say this. My professional undertakings 
are of a nature that if there was that kind of involvement by the government, I would be aware of it. I'm not aware of it. I've seen no indications. There are certain ways that the government would go about researching this. You talked about the, uh, you know, the book, The Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, kind of the way the, uh, the research methodology and the funding methodology was set up for uh, NIDS and Bass when they were looking into Skinwalker Ranch would indicate that something's up. I've seen none of those indicators. Uh, I could be contacted by, you know, other representatives of the government. I could be told, you know, this is a classified operation. You can't talk about it, and it would end my involvement. So that hasn't happened. So I, you know, either they're not interested or I'm not on their proverbial radar. Yes, and I think that's important to point out because a, a lot of times listeners and people immediately go to that um you know, that box and want to make sure that that's checked. And I think it is in this case, it's, it's standing out in a, in a way that is uh, all its own. Something also that I find very interesting is there seem to be um, electromagnetic manipulation when it comes to devices and theorists um, such as Anthony Patch and others. Of course, there's Gordy Rose, who's publicly stated that his D-Wave quantum computer might be accessing parallel dimensions. It does seem at times that some of this high strangeness interacts with and almost takes over things of electrical nature. Have you had any devices um, or items you're using on site be manipulated or, or messed with in any way? Uh, yeah, not so much that they were you know, taking over or used as, you know, a means of communication or anything like that. But we have had a lot of interference with our equipment, you know, to the point that I will, I remember one case in particular, I had a, uh, a digital camera worked fine before we left base camp, got to base, or got to the meadow, wouldn't work at all, you know, would not function at all. Returned back to base camp, worked perfectly. You know, we've had, Battery drain, you know, something you go out there with a you know, full charge on your equipment. Uh, batteries have maybe one-tenth of their life cycle. You know, they will die very quickly when you're out there. Things like that. Uh, weird radio interference. You know, your radios don't seem to always want to work. Uh, we've had strange things where sound is encapsulated, like, You'll have three people in a row. This is an electronic, but it's worth noting. Uh, you know, three people in a row. A person on the far end will say something or make a sound. The person on the other far end will hear it, but the person in between them won't. So it's like there's a, a cone of silence, you know, like that sound gets absorbed in some way. Uh, many of our team members uh, have had their electronic watches uh, not work right. So a lot of us uh, now wear either uh, automatic watches that are self-winding mm -hmm. or old-fashioned analog wind-up watches. So we always know what time it is. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, interference with electronics and uh, battery drain is, is very common in these areas. Amazing. Yes, the latter, uh, the, the latter affirmation that you said about the watches, we've also found that in the Uinta Basin um, and that, yes, uh, the, the electric watches, electronic watches, Fitbits, iWatches, etc., seem to experience 
transformations that um, should not or be be possible really uh, a, a lot of jumping back and forth in time so that's that's really neat that you've found a, a lot of things that uh, I, I can attest is is strange I wanted to delve really quickly into you know the strange belief or maybe the related belief that some of these areas may be areas of demonic activity. A lot of the available UFO literature is closely linked with uh, mysticism and metaphysical, and it deals with subjects like mental telepathy, automatic writing, invisible entities, all as phenomena that are somewhat poltergeist or ghost-like. Have you had any accounts where team members or yourself may have arrived on location and, and kind of felt that indescribable sense of menace or is it something that it, it manipulates your emotions when you're in the area at times? Uh, yeah, yeah. We've, we've gone out there, and I've, I've personally experienced it uh, where you feel like something is watching you or you're under observation and you're not comfortable. And, you know, in those circumstances and in those instances, you just have to kind of, you know, grunt your way through it. You just have to deal with that emotion or that feeling and stay focused on your mission. But, uh, you know, it's, we all go to places, you know, in the world where things don't seem right. They seem off. They seem, I'm not going to use the word cursed, that's a loaded word, but they seem like perhaps they're not the place you want to be. And you look at the folklore of pretty much any community, and there's talks of cursed places, haunted places, places that you don't go to, places that the locals stay away from. And, you know, as human beings, uh, we are dialed in to many, many uh, sensations and senses that we not, may not particularly be aware of. You know, human beings are multidimensional creatures that, you know, obviously has been proven. And that gut feeling, that intuition uh, comes into play, you know, in these areas of high strengthness. So I think there's probably a myriad of places of super high strangeness uh, all over the country and all over the world that people know about deep in the gut, you know, in, deep in their guts, deep in the back of their minds, you know, you know, in their, in their internal organs, they just know something's not right about this area. And those are the areas that are just absolutely ripe for research. So hopefully, you know, individuals hearing this, you know, may think about that and go out and do their own research and find their own meadow, you know, in their own backyard, which, actually would be kind of cool to hear about uh, more places like this. Yeah, the, these wild paranormal hotspots, they seem to be few and far between, but I think there's more out there than people are aware by all accounts. Fascinating stuff. Such great work, Trey. You mentioned you were self-funded. Where can listeners donate or support your endeavors? Ah, that's uh, probably the best way is you have to buy the book. Uh, that, you know, that gives me a little bit of funding that I can use to purchase uh, various equipment. Uh, we, unfortunately, are not set up as a 501c3 yet, uh, so donations, uh, you know, aren't tax deductible. Uh, you know, if anybody just really feels compelled that they want to support this, uh, support this endeavor, uh, the best way is to go to uh, Facebook, and I am on Facebook as Trey Hudson-Author, and just uh, you know, send me a message. You know, if somebody wants to contribute to the cause, uh, 
I've got some uh, other kind of exciting things uh, happening uh, that will be going into hopefully a second book, uh, looking at some of our experiences perhaps from a different perspective that I hope will shield some additional light. So I'm kind of excited about those endeavors. Uh, I've got some some pretty high-powered professionals that are offering you know, some of their time and efforts pro bono. So, uh, you know, the sky's the limit, and I hope to get to share some some new and other amazing stories with everybody here, you know, in the next year or two. Amazing. As always, great information, covering your new developments, intriguing investigation methods, and not to mention uh, you, you've got a lot of high strangeness and it's all documented. So I definitely recommend the listeners purchase your book. It is available on Amazon. Is that the route you would recommend them purchasing it or is there another? Uh, Amazon is the easiest way. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Trey, for coming on today. Can't thank you enough and uh, wish you all the best of luck in your, in your research. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's been a, uh, a pleasure and an honor. And thank you for having me today. There are places on this earth that are best left unvisited. Paranormal and supernatural locations which are swimming in accounts of high strangeness. The meadow is seemingly verified as one of these locations, where statistics and science and rationale are problematically riddled with doubt. Doubt about the nature of our reality. Have these locations always existed? The unknown and supernatural has been recognized by our ancestors for millennia. Hunter-gatherer societies have accounts of supernatural, paranormal, and out-of-this-world activity as far back as they could scribble the accounts on stone. The details have always been murky. Then again, the devil lies in the details. Gathering decipherable data on these locations seems the only chance humanity has to continue the conversation in a legitimate, educated way. Scribbling our encounters on rocks just isn't going to cut it anymore. As many listeners know, I too have a dog in this fight. A space wolf, in fact a privately held, small real estate company experimenting with various research methods to detect anomalies and anticipate them. You can keep up with that at spacewolfresearch.com. I too understand the issues with funding, and the best way that you can help out is by subscribing to this podcast on Patreon. Look for Hero Paranormal at patreon.com or go to heroparanormal.com on Podbean. Another way is purchasing my books, The Utah UFO Ranch on Amazon, or Shapeshifter Territory on Amazon. For you podcast listeners, there's a bunch of content behind that paywall. You really should. So trust me when I say I can relate. Appreciate the work being done by Trey and his team. Dealing with precisely some of the same strange uncertainties can do that. And intelligence agencies' interest in UFOs, high strangeness, and portal-like activity is not a recent development. As long as time has been a thing, 
the powers that be have wished to know more about the marginal, deceptive, and unidentified characteristics of our reality. It's nice to know folks like Trey, the Oxford Paranormal Society, the Anomalous Studies and Observation Group, and others. Normal folks like you and I are aggressively pondering, researching, and trying to document phenomena so we have something to pass down to the next batch of normal folks. All this info can't be held behind a vault of secrecy forever. So until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Time machine, third eye feeling like it need visine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like it need visine. Blast off, blast off.